Okay, yeah, as has been said, happy Father's Day, guys. Um, I'm thinking about this. To all of our biological fathers and our adopted fathers and our spiritual fathers and our stepfathers and our fill-in fathers, fathers here on earth still with us, fathers in heaven waiting for us, this is a day to thank our heavenly father for our earthly fathers. So this is what I want to do. I want all the fellas in here, young and old, to stand up. Guys, stand up right now. And then I want the ladies to get close. And the, the Bible talks so much about laying on hands. I think the support and the love that's given to that. Ladies, if you can find some fella and put your hand on his shoulder, I'm going to offer a prayer. And, and I, just, I just want, if you can find a fella to put in, guys, you might have to get close to some of the women here and let them situate themselves. And Ladies, put your hand as we can on these fellows, and let me offer a prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for men who have fathered us in their role as mentors and guides. We thank you for the men who are yet to become fathers. May they openly delight in their children. And we thank you for those fathers who have died but live on in our memory and heart and whose love continues to nurture us. Thank you that we live in a nation where they want to recognize the good things that you're doing through fathers. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Everybody can be seated. Thank you so much. So, yes, welcome cyber world. Welcome physical world. Uh, first, a word of thanks. A special word of thanks to both Robin and Nathan. Uh, last week, good night, the word you delivered was filled with such truth. Amen. Thank you for that. Thank you. And for Isaac and the team last week, oh, thank you. Thank you for the inspiration that you bring us week after week. And we really appreciate uh, Willie and Autumn this morning. So a word of thank you to that. Now, speaking of truth, have you, have you noticed how everything changes when truth is found I think that's the only way transformation ever really happens. This is the most important aspect of our antenna, the spiritual antenna that we're raising up. It's that we might discover truth. Truth. In fact, our text for this series, the little phrase that we're looking at this morning, Romans 12, verse 2, says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by... The renewing of your mind. The way we live as a nonconformist to the world, as was talked about last week by Nathan, is by becoming mind renewalists of our Lord. But there is no mind renewal if truth is not located. And if my mind is not renewed, then transformation is out of reach. There's no behavior change. So we keep knocking our head up against the same wall. We don't ever, we don't have ever, ever have any victory. We keep tripping with the same things again and again. Dal uh, Dr. Alice Cullman did a study on behavioral transformation. She asked her subjects how would they feel if a person suddenly, abruptly pulled in front of them in traffic and cut them off. We all know that feeling. The subjects said, well, there would be anger, and there would be frustration, and there would be unhappiness, just the tip of the iceberg. Then the doctor asked them what they would, uh, what if they noticed in that car that pulled in front of them so quickly, 
a woman with one hand on the wheel and another hand on the forehead of a child that was bleeding profusely. She's obviously in a hurry, to, uh, in a hurry, obviously in a hurry to the hospital to find help for her child. Well, there's an immediate transformation. What turned from anger and frustration, now every subject asked, and it was a bunch, said, oh, oh, now I would have sympathy. Now I would be wanting to help clear the way to get her there. An immediate change. Once truth is found and the mind is renewed, then transformation, it'll happen. Sports Illustrated said that the two greatest sporting events in the 20th century was the climbing of Mount Everest by Sir Edmund Hillary and the breaking of the four-minute mile by Roger Bannister. For decades up to that point, many attempted those two feats but failed. But in the 10 years following Sir Hillary's success, 15 more did it. And in the 10 years after Bannister broke the four-minute mile, 336 more did it. Why? Because once truth is found, the mind is renewed, and the transformation happens. People, we, we're dead in the water without truth. We can't even get out of the starting blocks. Look at this passage. You must not live any longer like the people of the world who do not know God. Their thoughts are foolish. Their minds are in darkness. How are you going to renew a mind if it's in darkness? They are strangers to the life of God. This is because they have closed their minds to him and have turned their hearts away from him. If you have heard of him and have learned from him, Put away the old person you used to be, having nothing to do with your old sinful life. It was sinful because of being fooled into following bad desires. Let your minds and hearts be made new. Notice, don't, you don't do it on your own. It's something that happens to you. You must become a new person and be God-like. Then you will be made right with God. Again, it's not something that you do. It's something that's done to you, and you'll have a true, holy life. The truth is, we are called to change our mind about life. 500 years ago, a French philosopher said, my life has been filled with terrible misfortune, most of which never happened. We actually have a study proving this to be true. It looked at thousands of subjects and talked to them about imagined calamities finding out later that they never materialized. Let me explain. Subjects were asked to write down their worst worries over an extended period of time and then identify which of their imagined misfortunes actually did happen and those things that actually did not. Do you know that what we worry about that never happens is about 85% of our worry? Dude. And the other 15% that does actually occur, 79% of those subjects where they had a worry and it did happen, only 15% out of those in the study, they all said, you know, I was able to handle this better than I expected and I did learn something that was really important for me to learn. 
So this means that 97% of what we worry over in this life is not anything more than a fearful mind punishing us with exaggeration. We waste 85% of mental and emotional energy on misperceptions. When we believe and surrender to Jesus, seek Him first, truth comes in, and right behind truth is mind renewal that follows inevitably with transformation. And the best part about seeking Jesus first is how it changes our mind about God. There are some things floating around out there about God in our world that are completely off base. They are erroneous to the T. They are not true in the slightest way. Years back, and and let me say this too. If those thoughts that you're listening to about God that are not true, if they are allowed in In your mind, for a lengthy period of time, you know what's going to happen to mind renewal? It's going to be delayed. And if your mind renewal is delayed, what is it that we're wanting to happen on the backside of that? Transformation. (laughs) It isn't coming. Years back, two professors from Baylor University wrote a book on how Americans viewed God. There were four basic different views that came from this very extensive study. Number one, People saw an authoritative God, a very judgmental and very engaged God with the world at the same time. Number two, a benevolent God, a God thoroughly involved in everyday lives, yet was loving and not stern. Number three was a critical God, a God removed from daily events, but one who renders strong judgment in the afterlife. And number four, a distant God, a God who set the world in motion and then just kind of disengaged. So you've got the authoritative God, the benevolent God, a critical God, and a distant God. Our view of God is extremely significant. Look what this great biblical scholar, A.W. Tozer, wrote. It's a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most pretentious fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he and his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. Well, what if your mental image of God is wrong? Our view of God greatly matters. Your mind and its perceptions are so powerful. You guys, God has put within us a capacity beyond what we know possible. And if our mind is exposed to truth, then the transformation will be into something beautiful and good. But if our mind is deceived by lies, destruction awaits. Dennis Waitley wrote a book called Empires of the Mind. 
And he tells these interesting stories about how the power of the mind either liberates or imprisons people. And one of the stories that are so interesting was a guy by the name of Nick Seitzman, S-I-T-Z-M-A-N. He was a railroad yard worker. He was a competent worker, had a negative attitude. He was kind of known for his pessimism. One day, everybody got off early because they were celebrating the birthday of a foreman. And just before Nick left to join everybody at the party, he went into a refrigerated car that was in the yard for repair, and he accidentally locked himself in the car. Well, he shouted for help, but everybody had already gone to the gathering. He began to panic, and he pounded the door, so much so that his hands actually began to bleed. Nick feared staying in that refrigerator car and freezing to death. He began to get cold and to shiver, and he figured that the temperature in the boxcar must be somewhere between 5 and 10 degrees Fahrenheit. And as he realized that no one would be rescuing him, he just kind of laid back thinking, okay, he found a pen in his pocket, found a piece of cardboard on the floor, and he wrote this note. It's getting cold. My body is numb. If I don't get out of here soon, these will probably be my last words. And they were. They came to work the next day to find Nick's body dead in that boxcar. The autopsy revealed that Nick had died of hypothermia. You want to know the shocker? That boxcar was in that rail yard because it was under repair, and what was needing repair was the refrigerator unit. That boxcar never dropped below 61 degrees that night. Nick froze to death because his mind convinced him that he was freezing to death. His mind deceived him. Do you know what the enemy wants you to think about God? He wants you to think that he's uncaring and that he's a tyrant in the sky with a lightning bolt waiting for you to make one wrong move. That he's eager to make this separation complete. The enemy wants you to think that God's against you. And if you keep listening to those lies, you know the terrible thing that's going to happen? Your mind is going to convince the rest of yourself that it's true. I want to show you something I discovered just two weeks ago. Now, I'll say this first. If you want to know what God is and what he's like, who he is and what he's like, You've got to look at Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh. You look again, you stick with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You look at those red letters. You can buy a Bible that's nothing more than the red letters. It's nothing more than what Jesus said. You just meditate on how he interacted with people, how he responded to folks. You want to know God? There he is. You find Jesus. But I'm going to take you to something I found two weeks ago that's not specifically about Jesus. It's all the way in the old account, in the Old Testament. It's in a place in 1 Kings chapter 3. This is an ancient document that records different events of these great old Jewish kings. When King Solomon took the throne after his father, David, died, it reads in verse 3 of 1 Kings 3, Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given him by his father David. 
Now, that's a, that's, a, that's a good rule. David was a man after God's own heart, and Solomon was in line. Did you notice the next verse, though? Except, except Solomon offered sacrifices and burnt incense on the high places. Now, David didn't do that. But his son Solomon, let me, let me explain a little bit more. When the Jews came into the land of Canaan, when they were given that land, many altars were left there by foreign nations before them who had offered up sacrifices to their pagan gods at these places. And God gave his people strict instructions on these sacrificial sites. He didn't want them to observe them. But here's Solomon doing just that. How in the world must God feel toward it? Man, you are walking right in the steps of your father David. But you're going over here and you're offering these sacrifices in these unholy sites. The people are going to get confused. Pick up the text in the very next verse, verse 4. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices for that which was mo for, for that was the most important high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. So this, he's been going here again and again and again. It's probably the largest high place in the land of Canaan. This place over in Gibeon. And here he keeps going. Would you notice the next part of the verse? At Gibeon, at this unholy site where Solomon is not doing what... At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream. Oh, God's about to let him have it, isn't he? And God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Now, did you catch that? Are you, are you with me? Solomon was not where he was supposed to be. And he was worshiping. The text is a little bit unclear on this. In fact, the scholars have a debate over it. Whether or not he was actually offering something to God, which God maybe allowed for a time until the temple was built. But you guys, the Ark of the Covenant is in Jerusalem. That's where God clearly wants the people to worship him. He doesn't want any association with any other God. Solomon had veered from the godly example of his father David and was worshiping on one of the most significant pagan sites. And so what does God do? He comes to Solomon at this unholy site during this unauthorized activity and he says, Solomon, what do you want me to do? know a God like that? When you're doing what you're not supposed to do, when you're where you're not supposed to be? Hey, Solomon, what do you want? And then we know the rest of the part there. Solomon, man, he, he hits a grand slam. He says, God, I don't know how to rule these people. I need wisdom. And God says, is that what you want most above everything? Yeah, I want wisdom. God said, well, you're not going to just get that. I'm going to pour it on, buddy. Look at after they have this exchange during the dream on what he wants, that's verses 6 through 14. 
Look what happens in verse 15. Then Solomon awoke, and he realized it had been a dream. He returned to Jerusalem, stood before the ark of the Lord's covenant, and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then he gave a feast for all of his court. You know, Solomon was at the wrong place doing something that God did not tell him to do. And God comes to him with this unbelievable grace and favor. And what is Solomon's first move? You know, I don't need to be here at this high place. <laughs> this is not where I belong. I belong in Jerusalem. I belong in the presence of the Lord, at his ark, his box, where he wants us to associate with him. And so that's where he goes back. If God's grace and favor has been extended to you, and if that's in question, then you're listening to some of those lies. And boy, your mind renewal is going to be delayed. But if God's grace and favor has been extended to you, and it has, each one of you in here, if it's been extended to you, maybe what, maybe what you need to do is to return where you're supposed to be. And you know what's ironic about that? Everybody says, well, I just don't know. I just don't know. You know what? If you get really still, everybody in this room knows exactly where they're supposed to be and what they're supposed to be doing. Because when you do what's contrary to that, that conscience is pricked and you know it. Have, have you experienced this? A God like this, do you see why it's so important for us to know the truth of God? Do you know why God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God whose son is Jesus, do you know why that God is called the most high God? It's because of the examples that I'm giving you. Because nobody responds like that to my disobedience. He is a greater God. He is a stronger God. He is a more gracious God. He is a God that is higher than any other God. And worshiping Him in His presence, oh, y'all. That's it. That's it. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you just open our eyes? I need it. We all need it. Let us sense your presence. And let us respond to such grace and favor far beyond anything we could ever deserve. In Jesus' name.